faith in the accomplishments of Christ, but also faith based on the accomplishments of themselves and their own works, specifically in their ability to be able to keep the law of God in order to obtain some type of self-righteousness that, that God would receive from them. And so the difficulty with this is that they're basically teaching this very dangerous mixture, this false gospel with, with, with the aspect of both faith and works together. Now, Paul cannot stand this idea, can't stand this teaching. In fact, Paul gets very fired up. We saw last week that he reserves some of his harshest criticisms and rebukes to this group of people that are found anywhere in the New Testament concerning Paul's writing. He's angry at the fact that these people actually believe that you can earn your salvation. He's even more angry that they're going around propagating this stuff to other people. Every time Paul goes into a town like Philippi and preaches that they're saved by grace through faith alone, as soon as he leaves, in comes this group of false teachers trying to pick low-hanging fruit and trying to find people who are anchored in their faith, and they begin to teach this works-based salvation, and they lead them ultimately astray. So Paul hates all of this, but what he hates the most is not the fact that they just believe this doctrine, false doctrine, not just that they're propagating this, this false doctrine, but they actually believe that they can achieve it. That's what angers Paul so much. These people believe that they could actually live a good enough life that God would receive them based on their own accomplishments. And so what he does is he wants to debunk this teaching. And he does it in a very interesting way. He actually shares his testimony in these these verses. He basically shows what he used to think like and live like and, and, and to compare what happened to him and now as a result of what happened to him, how he now thinks and how he now lives. I, I don't normally really give titles to my sermons. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. You know, some people get up and say, today I am preaching on this subject, and then they have this really cool, like, title. And I tried to do that for a while, but they all sounded so stupid. But if, if I were to give a title to this one, it would be the testimony of a terrorist. The testimony of a terrorist. Paul was, in every bit of actuality and reality, a religious terrorist who persecuted, killed, beat, and used terror in order to be able to frustrate other religions and to be able to put them out of existence. This is who Paul was. And so what he does is in this, he begins to share in order to debunk this idea that one can work their their, their way into salvation, into right standing with God, he shares with us three things. First of all, Paul shares his previous confidence in his accomplishments. Now, I say previous, previous confidence because he at once was confidence in all that he did, but now not so much more. But he's teaching us that this is the way he used to think. Now, notice the end of verse 3, he says, Put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is doing good enough things that God would accept us by our own good works, he says, I have more. Paul is in essence saying, hey, you like apples? 
how you like these apples, all right? You think you have an impressive resume of obeying God? You think you have an impressive list of, of attributes and things that you've accomplished on behalf of God, so much so that you believe that God will accept these and accept you because of what you've ultimately done? He goes, you haven't seen anything. My resume is far greater than yours, and if anybody ever had the ability to be confident in their background and all their accomplishments, it's not you, it's me. Now, that sounds a little arrogant, right? I mean, he's, if he had a foam finger, he would just be holding it up right, and waving the foam finger. I'm number one. Can't be number two. We're going to beat the whoopsie out of you. All right, so that's, that's kind of how he's coming across this. But have you ever heard the phrase, well, it's not bragging if it's true? Well, Paul's kind of showing this. He, he's backing up this bold statement that he's the most righteous man alive, at least self-righteous man alive, and the fact that he holds up his resume against these guys. And so what he does, he holds up the resume of seven different um, accomplishments on behalf of Paul. Now, I need to interject right here. Paul is killing me in this book with these lists. Okay, I just got to tell you. You know as well as I do, it is hard, even when you're reading the scriptures, that when you come across these, these lists, even to pay attention to them. Are you with, be honest, you just kind of read them and you're like, skip over. Okay, there's a list, skip over, let's get to the next part. It's twice as hard to actually get the congregation to camp out on this list for a while and actually preach them. So I found myself through this teaching getting angry with Paul uh, because of his list, but I am reminded, as the scriptures say, that Paul didn't write this apart from the influence of the inviting presence of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when he gives these lists, it's God who is leading him to write these very lists. And we understand from his writing to Timothy that this, that all scripture is profitable for us, for both life, that is eternal life, and for godliness. So as painful as this is going to be, and this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me, I promise you on this, we're going to work through this list of, of seven things as quickly as we possibly can. Now, this does not mean that I have more than three points this morning. You cannot hold that against me. He preached 10 points this morning. No, this is sub-points, all right? Completely different. But let's look at what the Holy Spirit would have us to know, okay? And I'll try to, uh, try to make it as painless as possible. First of all, he, he takes these seven things, and he divides them up into two groups. The first four are divided up into his, in, what he inherited. The last three are the things in which he earned on his own accord. Notice, first of all, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, he's saying, I'm an eighth dayer. All right? Now, this means something to the Jewish people. The Jewish people in the Old Testament were commanded to, when they had a boy, uh, for them to circumcise them seven days after the day that they were born. It was known as the Jewish eighth day. So every good Jewish family would circumcise a little boy on the Jewish eighth day. And, and what Paul, in essence, is saying is, man, I grew up Jewish. I was born Jewish. I've known nothing else but this particular religion. He goes, I, I, I didn't convert when I was older. I, I wasn't a proselyte coming from some pagan religion. He goes, man, I, he goes, I grew up and I was born. I was in my mama's womb when I first started going to synagogue, all right? That, I mean, you, this, is, this is what he's uh, boasting in. And, and he says, so in other words, I had the perfect religious upbringing, number two. He says, he says, first of all, circumcised on the eighth day. Then he says, I was of the people of Israel. He's speaking of his nationality, all right? He's speaking of specifically his roots. He's saying, I'm a pure blood. 
if, if he were to go and log on to Ancestry.com, what he would find is he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't have to worry about some shocking experience that he logs on thinking he's 50% Italian and finds out that he's actually three-fourths Eastern European, all right? He's, he's not going to worry about that. He logs in, and he sends his blood in, his DNA. He founds out he's 100% Israelite, 100%. And his family tree is not a fern like mine is, right? And, and probably yours is. You're like, hey, you're Polish? Yeah, uh, how much? Like 2%? You know, and, and you, you don't have that much, but you're all these other things. With Paul, he looks back, and basically, we're talking palm tree, right? He can go directly back and, and follow his lineage very easy, all the way back to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Easy to be able to follow, straight line back to them. He was a part of God's special, hand-picked, chosen people who were chosen not only with the actual worship of God and the temple worship of God, but also with his special revelation of the word of God. This is the people that he was from. This is his background. These are his credentials. Now notice he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Now what he's saying here is not only was he a part of this unique hand-picked chosen family of God, which is very small compared to all the other people in the world, but he was also a part of one of the most esteemed tribes of the 12 tribes. So it's not just that he was a part of the great people. He was the elite of the elite, the tribe of Benjamin. It was actually named after a young boy, a son, uh, 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 actually Isaac and Rachel's son. And he was the only young man that was actually born in the promised land. The tribe of Benjamin, has people had a high view of them because they were the only tribe uh, of the 10 northern tribes that actually remained faithful to David and to Judah when the two tribes split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. This Benjamin, this tribe of Benjamin, is where Israel received their first king, King Saul. In fact, it's what Paul was where he received his actual birth name was from King Saul from his old tribe of Benjamin. And then notice the fourth thing here. He was, a, he was also a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, basically what this means is that he was brought up in an old school family, baby. All right, old school. All right. They, they meant business. During this time, a lot of the Jews were not really holding to the old ancient languages of Hebrew and Aramaic. They were all being Hellenized. That means that they were all kind of falling into the Greek culture. They were adopting the Greek language, but not Paul's family, right? I mean, these are old school folks. None of this new whammy, jammy, kind of newfangled contemporary type of worshipy music stuff. This is old school Jewish hard-nosed Judaism, all right? And so this is what they're ultimately brought up with. Now, this is what, he hasn't done anything to this point. This is just the credentials of how awesome this guy's background is, okay? Now, he goes into, at this point, we're almost done, uh, in this point, goes into what he himself did. He inherited these things. Now, this is what he achieved on his own. Here they are, three of them. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Now, the word Pharisee literally means separated ones, the Pharisees were a, a sect of Judaism, uh, resulting of about 6,000 Jewish men. And they really put a high uh, preference and in, in, um, in commitment to living a pure life before God. Why? Because they believed it was through their own righteousness that they would ultimately be saved, accepted, or rejected by God. So they were rule followers. In fact, they were rule makers. 
They not only wanted to follow the rules and the law of God, but they begin to make up all kinds of laws themselves, 613 of them to be exact. And they begin to build basically a fence around the law so that they wouldn't get close at all to, to breaking one of God's laws. So here would be one of those laws. If you were going to spit on the Sabbath, I mean, I'm not sure if spitting was in then. I'm not really sure why they would come up with this law. But if you were to spit on the Sabbath, you had to make sure that you, it wasn't work which sounds really strange, but we know that God's law says we need to keep the Sabbath holy, which means to don't work on it. We get that. So in order not to break that, they're like, okay, guys, sometimes you want to spit. Okay, whatever. And so here's one of the laws you, you want to spit. So here's going to be the rule. The rule is you can spit, but if that spittle rolls in the dust more than one half revolution and it goes all the way over, then that's work. This is actually, this is true. Okay, I'm not making this up. You guys are always like, you're making stuff up. I'm not making stuff up, all right? It, it, so if it makes a full revelation, so, so basically the teaching was you can spit, but you better stick it, all right? You better stick it. You better stick the landing, man, or you're gonna be guilty of laws. And so not only were they seeking to be obedient to God's laws, but they had all these man-made laws around them, and he, they're following all those as well. And so what Paul's, in essence, saying is, hey, you Judaizers think that you kept the law? I'm a Pharisee. We are not only keepers, but we're makers of law, all right? So he goes on to the next point. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was, for all accounts and purposes, a, a radical Jewish religious terrorist. And it's interesting to me, as I've preached so many years on Paul, but it's interesting to me on how you can live at a certain time and all of a sudden these things become more real to you. And you begin to understand exactly what Paul was all about because of the terrorism that happens around you. So this is who Paul ultimately was. We read in the book of Acts that his whole desire basically was to go and to impede and to persecute and imprison and kill Christians. He wanted to wipe out Christianity from the face of the earth. He was a part of stoning. I mean, we see this on the news, and it's sickening that people would stone. Paul was a part of that. He, he agreed with that. Now, he didn't actually pick up the stone himself because he was above that, but he had no problem allowing, you know, allowing guys to stone as he was watching their coats and approval as they began to stone Stephen to death. The Bible says through the rest of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that there, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3 goes on to say, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You read on a little bit further in chapter 9, it says that Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus Christ. What's the point? This man was zealous. This man was not one of those guys that just said that he believed something. He demonstrated he believed something through the zeal in which he carried it out. And so he was the full-blown thing. It's interesting to me. It's hard to get Christians up from, from a Saturday in which they spent all day at the beach and went out through dinner into a late movie. And we have a hard time getting them up into church on Sunday morning. And these folks are like, I'm willing to give my whole life. I'm willing to even kill people based on what I ultimately believe. It's not, it's not to, 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 to sit back and to praise them in any way because all of that is evil. But I am amazed by the depth of zeal. And this is the type of zeal that Paul has for what it is that he believes. And finally, it says, as to righteousness, and we know, all know what finally means if you were here last week, it means nothing. And so 
As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless, blameless. Now, what he's basically saying here, he's not, he's not professing that he's perfect. No good Jewish upstanding man would say that. But what he's saying is that he had an outward conformity to the law, not only the law of God, but also the laws that they had made up in the Torah, over 600 laws. And so he's very much like the rich young ruler. Do you remember in the New Testament, <coughs> a young man runs up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, how might I have eternal life? And Jesus says, you know what the law says. And he begins to list a bunch of the laws, the Ten Commandments. And he says, from my birth, from from the time of a little boy, I followed all of these commands. Now, Jesus doesn't turn around and say, you big fat liar, you have not. He turns to him and he goes, yeah, you have done all these things. Now, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is meeting him at his same level. This man is thinking, as long as there is the outward conformity to these laws, as long as I don't actually make a golden image, as long as I don't actually uh, commit adultery on my wife, as long as I don't actually murder people, then I am holy and I am righteous and I am keeping the law. Jesus says, you're right. From that standard, you're absolutely right. You've kept them. But what he's saying is, the problem is, we're not trying to get you to just have an external conformity to the law. Your problem is inward. So what he does is he strikes him at the sin of his heart, and he says, one thing you have not done, sell all that you have and follow me. And the man couldn't do it. Jesus exposed the self-righteousness, the selfishness, the, 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 the desire for material things in the world, the lack of care of other people in his heart. He went right to the root of the problem. But the key is, at least from an outward perspective, he was blameless. And that's the way that the Jewish people would have ultimately seen it. And anybody who would have looked at Paul's life would have seen the same exact thing. They would have seen a man that was holding to the truth of the law better than anybody else was ultimately holding to it. The problem is he had the same problem as we all do, and that is we might look squeaky clean from the outside, but there is a lot of muck and dirt and grime and sin on the heart. So Jesus said these very words in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27. He said, woe to you. And it's interesting to me because I, I wonder if Paul was here when Jesus said this. I don't know if the timing lines up perfectly or whatnot, but, but he may or may not have been, but no matter what, it applies to him. Jesus said, he said, scribes and Pharisees, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see that? So Paul, before he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he said, I had all my ducks in a row. I was a good person, everything was good, and I had a lot of good things going for me. And if that is what could save you, I was better off than anybody else that I know. Now, let's get to the second point here. And then at the very end is when we're going to give some more application, all right? And you're like, really? All the way to the end? We got to wait for the application? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you, okay, on the way, all right? So number two, here it is, Set number two. Paul then shares his change in his accounting practices. There's a change in Paul's accounting practices, specifically how he values something. Now, notice what the Word of God says. He says, but whatever gain I had, or another way to say it in verse 7, is but whatever gain I thought I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul's using these accounting terms, gains, losses. It's very similar to, you know, to credits and debits. He's talking about adding to and taking away. This is Paul's mindset. He says, before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, this is the way that I thought that it worked. I look back at all the gains that I'd accomplished in my life and that I inherited. And what's interesting is the word gains is actually plural, which means in his accounting, he was counting every single one of them because he believed after counting them that on the day of judgment before God, when he stood in judgment at at God's final judgment before God, that based on all of these gains, all of these good things that he did, that he would be acquitted in God's final judgment. But what he didn't know is the things that he thought would acquit him would ultimately condemn him. Now, stop and think just for a moment. I I don't know how often you share your faith, but if you're just kind of doing a cold, like, drive-by shooting where you're trying to, I should, let me rephrase that in this time. Sorry, let me, well, edit that out. Excuse me. But if we are going to, you're going to do kind of like a a drive-by in the essence that you're just going to share cold to somebody with, with, with with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then when you do, you, you have to enter into a relationship, and sometimes this is how you begin it. Here it is. Um, if you were to die today, uh, where would you go? Would you go to heaven or hell, right? And immediately, because we're in the South, how do people answer? Heaven, right? Is, is that correct most of, most of the time? Heaven. And it's not even like they have to think about it. It's not even like, well, well, let me, uh, it's like, heaven, right? And then you ask, well, why would you be worthy of heaven the response, southern response, what is it? Because I am a, say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And so this is how most people are thinking. And this is how people think before they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully. And this is every other religion in the world, by the way. Even radical Muslims. This is why they do what they ultimately do. The way they think is that one day they know that they will stand before judgment of God. And before God, there's going to be a huge scale. And all of your good stuff is going to be on one side. And all of your bad stuff is going to be on the other. None of us deny the fact that we have bad stuff, but what we're hoping is, is that there's enough good things on that scale that it outweighs the bad things on that scale, and because of that, God is going to ultimately accept us. That's why this is how they say, because I'm a good person. Now, I'm not perfect, but I'm a good dad, I'm a good husband, I'm a good worker. Do you see them calculating? Just like Paul did, plural, counting up all the things, and they're praying. The problem is what they don't understand is that God does not judge us based on our worst. He judges us on our best, and our best is not good enough. Here's why. Because everything we do apart from Christ, everything that we try to attempt to be righteous before coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not done for the glory of God, but it's done for self-ambition, self-gratification, and self-glorification. It's done for our own good apart from God. That's why the scriptures tell us that the very righteousness of man, that is the very best that man has to offer, the very best that man is hoping that will ultimately save him from the impending judgment of God is as dirty, filthy, leprous rags in the sight of God because they're completely contaminated with sin. And so this is what people do. This is what people hold. This is the way the average person out there thinks in these same terms as Paul once thought and as many of us once thought. In verse 8, now notice what he says. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Something happened to Paul to change all this. Something completely changed because now his accounting is completely different. His his accounting is completely different. Listen, he went from thinking and treasuring all those good works and all those good things that he's done and all of his background, thinking that they're the most wonderful thing and completely devaluing this person, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants to snuff out and kill the church. Something happens to where now that's reversed. Now, everything he put his hope in, everything he was so proud in, everything that he so boasted in, he now says, it's loss. He says, the things that I thought were so great are, were not working for me. They were actually working against me. What happened to him? Conversion happened to him. What happened to him is he was exposed to the reality of Jesus Christ. We read this in the book of Acts. This is what happens in every conversion. Note this. He's writing, not exactly like this. We're not all on the road to Damascus. Okay, but work with me here. Okay, I'll get an email about that. Not all of us were riding on Damascus when we got saved. All right. Work with me. Give me some grace, okay? And so he's on the road. What is he going to do? He's going to do more good works. He's going to, he's going to uh, uh, persecute the church. This is what God would accept him with. And on the way, he comes face to face with a blinding light. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Knocks him off the animal. He falls to the ground. And he hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When he's presented with the gospel, when he comes face to face with Jesus Christ, everything is radically changed. Everything before that had value no longer has value. The things that seem to have no value now have infinite value in the person of Jesus Christ. What I love what he says, he says, I count everything as lost. That word count literally means after careful, long, long, disciplined, thought this is the conclusion that i came to and what's interesting here is he had a long time to think on this careful time to think of this we know that after he was thrown to the ground and after a couple other events that he actually goes and paul disappears out of the scene for how many years three years in the desert of arabia and we often sit back and go what was he doing out there you know what he was doing he was thinking he was thinking on all that he did to what to win himself to salvation and all that Jesus Christ did to save him. And there's the, the conclusion that he came to, came to is this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It stood against me. It didn't work for me. It, was, it had no value whatsoever. And this was a man who did it all. And what I love is when he says there, did you notice that part when he says, my Lord, Jesus Christ, my Lord, this is significant because this shows that he came to true salvation. We know earlier in our study that Jesus was given by the Father a name that was above every name, that at at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is, say it, is, is Lord. This is the first time and only time in all the scriptures that he uses this term, Jesus is Lord. In all of the New Testament, what he is saying is, Jesus Christ, I came to know that he was indeed God. And his life was forever changed. Third thing that happens with him. And then application. Everyone could go home and eat ice cream because we have no ice cream here for you. All right, number, number, number three, Paul, the, Paul the, 
Thank you for not asking if there was more ice cream today because I don't think we have any. Anyway, check the freezer. Then we might have some. All right. Paul then shares his new dependence, his new dependence. So all of this, he he comes to the conclusion. Look at verse 9. He wants to now be found in him. Now notice, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I know this is just a lot of different words, so let me try to explain it. What he's basically saying is, is this. He goes, I don't want that righteousness that I used to work for by obeying the law anymore. That's not what my life is. I'm not working for that anymore. I worked for that before I came to Jesus. I was constantly working to be accepted by God, by my own works and everything I've done. I don't want that kind of righteousness because that righteousness will send you to hell. The righteousness that I want is the righteousness that comes not from my faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. No, he says, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Literally, it means through the faithfulness of Christ. Here's part of the gospel you need to hear. Jesus did what you and I could not do. He was tempted in every way, and he sinned not. He did not come to destroy the law, but he obeyed every jot and tittle of the law. He did what you and I could not do. So that you and I, instead of having to be perfect to be accepted by God, he gave us Jesus Christ, who in our place would live perfectly, and not only live perfectly to meet the standard of righteousness that God needs, but he would also die for us to pay for our unrighteousness. So he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become his righteousness. He says, I don't want to try to work anymore for my own righteousness. Instead, what I want to do is just put my faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's the life that he's going to live now. I like that. But what do we do with it? That's where I struggled all day yesterday, all this weekend, trying to figure out. I don't have a message. I don't have a sermon. What do I do? Where's the application in this? Here's what I came to after the Holy Spirit began to convict me. There are some things that a pastor just can't do for you. As much as he would want to, there's just certain things that he can't do for you. And one thing he can't do is he can't self-examine your life. See, the whole point of this whole thing, the whole warning is not to put faith in anything else except for the completed work of Jesus Christ for your salvation and for your Christian living, both. Not to put in anything else. But the question is, is, is how, do I know, how, how do I know if that's what you're doing or not? How, what illustration do I give or what application do I give when only you can answer that question? And so I need to, we need to, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, follow Paul's teaching when it says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Are you depending on anything else other than Christ's work for you to be born again? That's what you have to ultimately determine. I can't determine that with you. But I want to give you a little bit more than that. That's what you have to do. And here's what I would say. If Paul took three years to think on that truth, I think we could take three minutes to think on it, don't you? Let me ask you three questions, and this may help you determine which you're doing, depending on him or depending on you. Number one, What do you find yourself boasting in? What do you find yourself boasting in? In other words, if I were to ask you today, if I were to ask you, hey, listen, um, how do you know that you're born again? 
And I would ask you that. Would, or if I said, how, if you were to die, would, would you go to heaven? What would, what, would you, what would you say? Would you be like Paul before he came to faith in Christ and begin to give me this wonderful background and, and all these lists? Well, you know, I was born in a Christian home, and actually I was in my mama's womb, and, uh, and I began to go to a Southern Baptist church, you know, uh, before I was even born. And, and we went, and we did RAs and GAs, and it was wonderful. And we had revivals, and we had Fifth Sunday Sing, and, and we used to have all kinds of wonderful eating experiences one to another, and it was good. And, and I used to teach, and I walked an aisle, and I, and, I, and I got baptized, and I signed a little card, got a little baptism certificate. I know I got that somewhere. And I had a gra- godly grandmother, and then, boy, nobody was more godly than her, and she would pray for me all the time. And she had this little Bible that she would ride in and she would she would put little notes in and when she died she gave me that bible and i've got that bible somewhere i'll tell you that's precious to me i'm not really sure where it is right now but it's it's somewhere it's precious to me and then i became this and, and then one day i walked out and you know and i got saved and, and then okay here here's my point is that may just be your testimony and a part of your story i get that it's kind of how we train before you get to the gospel make sure you tell people what your life was before we, we get that but if you find yourself with any bit of confidence in your upbringing or your living, and the confidence and the boasting is in that and not simply this, let me tell you a good way to say, are you confident that you're born again? What I would suggest you do, leave yourself out of it and just simply say, I'm confident because of the completed work of Jesus Christ's death burial, and resurrection on my behalf. That's what brings me confidence. Number two, what are you teaching? What are you teaching? We are not to teach our children how to become Pharisees. We are not to teach our children to simply become outwardly conforming to the laws of God. And I think that's sometimes what we, what we do unintentionally. What we're doing is, look, here's the laws of God. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not, you know, thou shalt honor your father and mother. And then when they don't do those things, we discipline them. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I'm saying is when the discipline is just for them to sit there and go, you're missing the standard, you're missing the standard. And until you begin to hit the standard, we're going to discipline you then what they're believing is, because it's within the context of a church, they're believing in a gospel that says, I must believe in Jesus and I must be good enough to be right. Same exact thing that the Judaizers were teaching. Here's the way that you and I ought to use the law. It's the way that it was intended, at least in part, and that is a tutor. Paul says, I would not have known I was a sinner apart from the law. So what we do is this, yes, we teach thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not whatever. We go through those laws, but with our child, as they come up against it and they break that law and we discipline them, we remind them each and every time, son, daughter, you are not to do this. This is wrong and sin against God. And then we say to them, but this is why you need Jesus. You can't keep this law apart from him. So we're not trying to make children that are outwardly conforming to some kind of self-righteousness, but take them to the law to show them that their self-righteousness is as rubbish and what they need is Jesus Christ. Number three, what are you doing? What are you doing? And what I mean by this is 
Does your faith that you say and cling that you have, is it nothing more than checking boxes every day? I read my Bible, I went to church, I did this, I prayed, I did whatever, and it's just a system. That's what it was for Paul before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a bunch of laws, it was a bunch of regulations, and what he would do is his mind was constantly caught in thinking about what he should or should not do, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's not a, a valid part of Christianity, but it's not faith in Christ. A faith in Christ is that you have a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus. This is Paul. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I now have a relationship with Christ. That's why everything else means nothing, but now it's just about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to ask you if you believe. I'm going to ask you, do you trust in Christ to the point you have a vibrant, real relationship with him? Not based on you doing all the right things, But in light of all that he's done for you, that you love him more and you cherish and you're seeking after him, do you have a relationship with him? Or is your Christian life just marking the boxes? Bottom line, only you can answer these things. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We love you. We glorify you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Dear Jesus, I ask that you would move and continue to move in this place. God, if those who are here, Lord, and only they can determine. Lord, maybe they come from a Catholic background or some other background, Lord, that they were actually taught. It's a mixture of faith in Christ and works. I pray that they would understand your Holy Spirit would teach them, man, it is by grace through faith alone and not of works. Not of works. And maybe we'd sit here this morning and some would, some would, some, some, you would just move in the heart and say, God, I am trusting way too much stuff in all these other things. Lord, allow me to trust in you. Maybe some come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know, but let us respond to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be standing, will stand together? I'm going to be standing down here. If you need prayer for anything, you come, we'll pray. You want to know more about Jesus Christ, you come, we'll pray. But work through what the text of scripture just taught us. You self-examine. Let's, let's, uh, let's.